This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. So this is uh, case 48 of the Blue Cliff, I'm sorry, not the Blue Cliff record, it's um, the Book book of Serenity. Uh, Vimalakirti asked Manjushri, what is a bodhisattva's method of entering non-duality? Manjushri said, according to my mind, in all things, no speech, no explanation, no direction and no representation, leaving behind all questions and answers. This is the method of entering non-duality. Then Manjushri asked Vimalakirti, we have each spoken. Now you should say, good man, what is a bodhisattva's method of entry into non-duality? Vimalakirti was silent. So for the last six weeks or so, we've we've had a practice period uh, going on here at uh, Austin Sun Center. Um, first of all, welcome. Are there any people here for the first time? Okay, welcome. Um, so we've been having a practice period here, and um, it just means kind of a, a little more activities or non-activities going on here, um, chances to be quiet together, some classes. Um, but the theme of this practice period has been mind. Um, and, uh, and we've sort of talked about lots of different kind of conceptions of mind, especially in Zen and in Buddhism. Um, and uh, during this practice period, I was teaching a class on the uh, on a poem from the third Chinese ancestor of Zen, uh, Sang Song. Uh, the poem's called the Xin Xin Ming, or faith or trust in mind. Um, so the practice period has ended, but this stuff is kind of still rattling around in my own practice and life. But I wanted to talk. Um, Particularly uh, in the class, it was only the last class that we got into um, this aspect of trust or faith um, and what, what Seng San might mean by that and what we kind of encounter in Zen and in Buddhism. What is our understanding of those words? Or that? Um, so I wanted to continue a little bit on that today. Um, <clears throat> So yesterday I was getting my hair cut um, and I was speaking with the barber about you know what I did or um, uh, we sort of got into a conversation about the Austin Zen Center and he was very excited um, he's never been here he's, um, but he's determined to come here I was maybe seeing if he showed up today um, and um, in our conversation he sort of gave me his way-seeking mind talk he sort of said here's my kind of experience of religion in my life, you know, and it has lots of ups and downs, just like all of ours, uh, I think, all of our stories. 
Um, and at some point in the conversation, he said, um, uh, for a long time, I was, a, you know, after a childhood in, in um, kind of missionary Baptist um, Christianity, uh, in my teenage years, I kind of um, put that down. He actually said that the, the whole story became sort of silly to him, like, like how, do I, how do I believe this? Um, and he practiced atheism. He was sort of a serious atheist. Um, and then he said something like he's come back to a sense of spirituality or something. And Buddhism excites him. And he was saying, um, I treat Buddhism as a philosophy. Like it makes sense to me as a philosophy. And I've studied other philosophies, you know, in college. And, um, and I hear that a lot, you know, um, and I think, yeah, okay, you know, I think um, Buddhism can work at lots of different levels. Um, but I often wonder about this hesitancy to call something a religion, you know, or a kind of Western intellectual kind of avoidance of religion or that word or something. Um, in my own experience as well, I'm not sort of putting this on somebody else. Um, so in the course of teaching this class about faith or trust in mind, um, it kind of threw me back on my own um, sense of what faith or trust is or looks like in my life and my understanding of, of how it presents itself in Buddhism and of course um, anytime you kind of create a theme uh, in Buddhism I think Mako mentioned this too it's like suddenly you see it everywhere so um, I think my own western non-religious sensibility came to Zen um, wanting something to do, a practice, not something to believe in. Um, and in that state of mind, there's a way in which, you know, reading the texts and Suzuki Roshi and other kind of Zen teachers, I could kind of cancel out any mention of faith or trust or um, devotion. Um, and then somehow in the practice period, having this be a focus and looking again, you know, it's just sort of everywhere. Um, and I, I found that interesting. Um, so uh, a wonderful Zen teacher who was um, a kind of friend of Suzuki Roshi's named Koben Shino um, Otogawa. Uh, who also had emigrated from Japan to the U.S. and um, uh, started the Jikoji um, Zen Center in, in California. Um, there recently a book about his, of his talks came out about a year ago. And he has a number of chapters titled Trust, Faith, and Confidence, 
another chapter titled Our Faith, and even one titled Does God Exist? Um, but in, in the chapter titled Trust, he says, um, Trust is contained in sitting. Stillness is another way to express what trust is. So I was caught by this uh, equation with stillness and trust or faith. Um, and Katagiri Roshi um, there was another Japanese priest who came to uh, San Francisco Zen Center. I think he came to America at Suzuki Roshi's behest and taught at the San Francisco Zen Center. Um, has a wonderful essay in this book called Returning to Silence. And the, the chapter is called Right Faith. Um, He says, where does faith come from? What is faith? And then he says, faith is completely nothing to, come on, to, to comment on. <clears throat> so perhaps the talk is done. <laughs> um, but, if, you know, of course he goes on to say more. But, um, <clears throat> faith is completely nothing to comment on. In Japanese, faith is jakujo or complete tranquility. Jaku means there is no one with whom you want to talk. Jo means serenity or imperturbability. Imperturbability is something that permeates every inch of our daily life, from the top of our head to the tips of our toes. Serenity is really something alive. Because it is in a state in which human life is always ready to fit itself into cer any circumstances and to act. But this fitting into any circumstances and acting is not doing something recklessly. If our head is not imper imperturbable, we cannot be ready to do something. Even if just the tips of our toes are confused, we are not ready to do something. So our whole body must be imperturbable, quiet, there must be a very clear consciousness there. Um, so these are two separate um, Japanese priests when bringing up this question of trust or faith, that their first instinct is to say something about stillness, um, serenity, imperturbability. So when Manjushri asked Vimalakirti, how do you enter non-duality? Vimalakirti was silent. And I imagine silent and active in some way. Like, 
got a Gary Roche. He says, serenity is, um, is really something alive. So I shared this story with um, with the class um, and uh, I don't often think about it or talk about it, but it actually kind of helps sometimes to talk about it, so I'll mention it here. Um, when I was uh, 19 years old, I was um, quite confused about my life, quite unhappy, I think. Um, and I dropped out of uh, university and had some romantic idea about traveling the world and having experiences and finding myself. Um, and after about three months uh, traveling around on trains in Europe, I um, ended up in a homestay situation in Finland. Um, staying with a lovely family on a farm out in the um, lakes region of Finland. And um, after only about a week of, of living with them, I um, developed a kind of soreness in my leg, um, what felt like a muscle cramp. Um, and uh, it kind of kept getting worse you know, a couple days, two or three days, until the whole calf swelled to the point where my foot was kind of locked in an extended position, and it was um, excruciatingly painful to stand on it. So thanks to the um, persistence of the mother of the family that I was staying with, Kaya, um, we went, to, we went to a doctor in the local town, and he said, yeah, I think it's a muscle cramp, you know, come back in a few days if it still hurts. And she said, no, um, can you refer me to somebody else? And we got in the car, we drove to a bigger town, to a university hospital, and um, uh, they very quickly tested and admitted me with a um, deep vein thrombosis in, the, in my leg. So... Um, you know, completely blocked vein, um, and um, part of that thrombosis um, broke off and went to my lung after a day or so in the hospital and turned into a pulmonary embolism, so intense amounts of pain, um, and for some reason uh, it, it wasn't in vogue at the time. I mean, the healthcare in Finland was, was wonderful, top-notch, like I won't you know, but for some reason it wasn't in vogue to give lots of painkillers to people in pain. Um, and so I asked a number of times, and I think like after asking three times for something, they brought me like a, an extra strength Tylenol, basically. Um, and um, 
you know, after some time um, to ponder my own experience, uh, I was deeply grateful for this opportunity I was given because they didn't take my pain away. So this was before I started Zen practice, and I um, um, I had this experience in intense amounts of pain that any motion or a cough or anything would kind of you know ratchet the levels of pain to sort of near intolerable uh, levels. I mean, it, it pretty much always felt intolerable, but something in my own body and mind figured out that if I breathed a certain way or I stayed conscious of my own breathing, the pain was less sharp. Um, and I don't know if I had been on lots of painkillers whether that kind of experience of my own body and mind would have occurred. Um, so anyway, the, I, I was in the hospital for 11 days as they, and on IVs and um, <clears throat> I think I lost, you know, 15 or 20 pounds, and I was like a skinny kid anyway. Um, but what I explained to the class was that the experience, when I walked out of that hospital after 11 days, I felt better than I had ever felt in my life. And that feeling um, was basically that everything is okay. Um, that's the only way I can express it. Everything is okay. And that okayness meant not like I've returned to health and I'm going to survive. Uh, I'm not in pain anymore. That okayness went to a kind of, if I had died, it was okay. You know, the fact that I was still alive was okay. Um, it was an imperturbable okay. You know, it wasn't conditioned by anything. Um, so, um, I bring that up in the sort of context of faith or trust, is that um, my own body and mind, um, through very difficult circumstances, were kind of turned to a kind of um, faith or trust that it was all okay. And it wasn't a faith or a trust kind of conditioned by things going a certain way. Um, <clears throat> and in preparation for this talk, I was um, part of the class was that I asked if people in the class would share their experience of kind of faith in their life, you know, good and bad, you know, I'm not, um, um, I'm totally compassionate of the fact that many of us have had kind of religion forced on us and a kind of um, browbeat into some idea of faith or trust in our religion. Um, but in reading these stories from some of the people in the class, one person mentioned that they have a kind of mixed reaction to hearing these stories of kind of faith or the awakening of faith. That it's both 
part of their experience and a kind of longing for it, you know, um, and a kind of jealous, yeah, like a kind of jealousy or um, in hearing somebody else present that, like there's this kind of battle, like yes, it's encouraging, and and yet instantly our mind goes to sort of this comparing. Um, but that's not my experience right now, or something. And I, and, and in response to that, I want to say, you know, I present this story of a, a particular moment in my life where I felt so deeply connected, and I want to say that that's not my experience of my everyday life, right now. You know, um, that um, we don't get given these sort of spiritual gifts, and then they're ours. You know, and we keep them in a in a closet and we pull them out. And, <laughs> Um, so there's almost the kind of same reaction to my own experience there's almost this sort of like appreciation of what you know um, the, the odd circumstances that evoked something out of my body and mind and a kind of longing that I don't have that experience I mean that, 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 that doesn't kind of present itself every day in my experience and I think I think that is something kind of honest about the nature of faith or trust is that we have experiences in our life that kind of show it to us and and we we can kind of engage it and then other experiences that we're kind of we know we're so kind of torn apart from it or or, um, kind of almost bereft You know, and maybe that's just the nature of human experience. But I think part of what practice is, is kind of encouraging ourselves or others in the kind of like, it helps to, to kind of remember what that felt like sometimes, you know. And any memory we can kind of bleed of all meaning, you know, with repeated remembering, like, oh, that was so great, you know, and then, oh, that was so great, and, well, yeah, that was kind of great, you know. (laughs) So it's not the experience itself or my idea of the experience um, that I think I try to practice with, but it's the kind of... um, maybe devotion or expressing appreciation for having had that experience is a kind of antidote to this sort of longing like oh, that should always be with me like I should have that you know? I found this interesting, I, you know, I, so I like that Katagiri Roshi and Kopenshino Roshi um, equate stillness and um, 
imperturbability and a kind of active silence with their notion of faith. Um, but I find it interesting that Kobenshino has this chapter called Does God Exist? Um, And in it, he says, this question of God's existence faces towards the outside, meaning we're, we're thinking something's out there. But actually, it comes back to each of us to ask whether we ourselves really exist or not. It sounds as if the answer is yes or no, fully 100% yes on the one hand, and on the other hand, 100% no. Although, actually, both are able to be true. Whether you settle on yes or no, things are still the same. It's interesting. One day, a young American man came to my master's temple and had a direct encounter with him. Later, my master's wife, who listened as she served tea, told me about it. The American asked, do you think God exists or not? My master answered, he must exist. He certainly must exist. The man said, oh, I thought Buddhists didn't speak about God. That's the very thing I wanted to hear. But why did you say must exist? My master answered, it's, it is very convenient. <laughs> <laughs> which I think Kobenshino knows is a funny line because then he says, he wasn't joking. <laughs> he wasn't joking. He always spoke like that to me. Only when, quote, only when you become very helpless, you scream for his, with a capital H, for his help. Certainly he comes and says, see, I told you, see, I told you. You didn't hear me. Correct your attitude. At that moment, things turn out pretty good. But when you are a good, but when you are in good condition, you don't even think about him with an H, big H. That is what he meant by convenient. So we. Um, So I think faith or trust or something is very deeply rooted in human experience. We don't quite understand what it is. And then the ways we try and name it, I think are often still about human experience. You know, We create God, or maybe God exists. But it's, it's sort of like we only experience it to the degree that I'm, I'm able to kind of interact with it. So... And I think there's something very true about human nature that we discover some wider existence, some stillness, some sense of God when we're deeply suffering. I think that was inherent in my own experience. Um, and then when I'm not in you know, lots and lots of pain, maybe I don't notice that sense of wonder or that that presence of God.
So Kobenshino continues, he says, I am sort of Japanese. I have roots in Japan, so I go back to contemplate where my root is. And I find there are many gods in Japan. And it finally settled down to the belief that they all originated from one god. You know, and you know, Shintoism is the nation's unspoken belief in Japan. From mythological times, we have believed God existed. So I did not have any question or doubt about it, even though I haven't met him. There are many names, but the actual one doesn't have a name. It is present in the future and fills whatever space and time is. It is a kind of presence. I have no doubt of that. I don't know anything about it, but I have no doubt about it. So I offer that for two reasons. You know, um, it's not <laughs> one to show that there is a kind of um, wide field in Zen, in Zen practice, for all of our kind of religious beliefs. Um, Suzuki Roshi used to kind of encourage people who came from different faiths to Zen to kind of. Honor their previous religion in some way. Um, but I found it interesting that in this chapter, Does God Exist? Kobanchino is quite certain that God exists. And that's Zen. You know, that's kind of interesting to my Western intellectual mind. <clears throat> share a little bit more from um, Katagiri Roshi on uh, faith. <clears throat> he says, according to Dogen Zenji's understanding of faith, there is nothing that persuades us or pushes us or forces us to create faith. Faith means tranquility, and complete tranquility is the source of our nature and our existence. There's no need to talk about tranquility or not tranquility in our life and in our zazen. Everybody is already perfectly tranquil. That is why people who do not practice Buddhism seem, seem not to seek for tranquility, but in actuality they, seem for, they seek for it and struggle for it in many ways. They work hard during the day and then they just want to come back to their home and sit down and relax, regardless of whether the house is fancy or not, messy or clean. We should always be aware, we should always be mindful of our original nature that is perfectly tranquil because daily life becomes so busy that we forget or ignore it. We should trust in this tranquility and practice it within the original nature of tranquility then we would be able to improve greatly in the practice of tranquility. If we behave in a certain manner so as to let this imperturbable, imperturbability break forth, it will really come up. If we do not behave in such a way, we will never have a chance to know, to realize the imper imperturbability we already have. 
Zazen is to adjust our body and mind to exactly fit this imperturbability so it naturally comes up. Zazen is exactly identical with our original nature of existence, which is called tranquility, imperturbability. So this is what I like about Zen. It's, it's, um, it's the activity of trust. It's the activity of faith. Zazen is to adjust our body and mind to express this stillness. So how do we do this? You know, how do we do this in practice? Somebody asked me one time, you know, when you sit down to do zazen, um, do you set an intention? You know, what's what is your kind of intention in zazen? I think early on that question sort of seemed like, you know, that's already doing too much or something. Like in zazen, you're supposed to be kind of letting go. Um, but over time, the, the answer that kind of developed was something about um, I sit down this doesn't happen all the, every time, but I think I often come back to a practice of sitting down and just repeating to myself body, breath and mind so am I aware of these three things you know, as the totality of my experience and I think each, each of the three presents an opportunity for engaging this stillness um, in our own ex- experience. Um, and I think in this practice period we've been mentioning, we've been talking about mind and big mind and what to do with our mind. And that's kind of one method. But I think what's been helpful for me um, in attuning to Zazen is more a kind of physical, body-felt sense of practice. Practice as mindfulness of the body, of um, attuning to my own posture, developing a sense of my own physical being um, through zazen and other practices, yoga and Feldenkrais method and tai chi and qigong. These are all kind of ways of kind of developing awareness of body. Um, And what I um, appreciate about the body, I think the... (coughs) I think there's often a kind of conflicted um, experience that we have with our mind and our body. Like they, they, to me, they seem to be working on different speeds. You know, my mind is jumping everywhere, and 
coming up all, with all kinds of great ideas um, and trying to sort of tell my body to do this and do that. And a body kind of works on a uh, kind of slower time frame, in my experience. Um, that it's not hopping around so much. But that's why it can be frustrating to the mind that wants to kind of have this activity. Um, and, and, and because of that relationship, you know, bringing our mind to our body, so bringing our attention to our physical being is a way of kind of grounding and slowing maybe the mind and giving it some stability, some serenity, some tranquility. And I think often, you know, how do we experience this stillness? You know, often in lots of spiritual realms, the answer is letting go. And that always feels frustrating to me. It's like, if you're struggling with something, like, just let go. Like, that doesn't help me in the sort of turmoil of wrestling with something. in fact, it just makes me kind of more upset or frustrated with the person giving that advice. <laughs> but I think the body, um, I think how we learn to let go, or how we have maybe any control over letting go, which is mostly none, um, is by bringing awareness to the experience of physically letting go. Or this has been helpful for me. Um, so during the session, we were doing some stretching, and I was trying to kind of um, encourage, you know, within a stretch, like in a long-held stretch, like you're stretching your low back, and you have your knees pulled up to your chest, and you're laying on the ground, and you're just sort of breathing into your low back, um, that if we just sort of bring our attention and our breathing to a certain area, at some point it can kind of shift and we, and we feel it. It's like, ah, oh, there's something, some new level of okayness in my body. Or, um, and we can't, I don't think we, we, we can make it happen. And it often if you're stretching or doing yoga in a forceful way to try and make something happen with your body, we can really um, do harm to the body and it doesn't feel good. But something about being in a stretch and noticing uh, some relaxation, some kind of ease, kind of becoming present. And actually, in my experience, it's often pre... uh, The the experience right before it is a kind of like actually a heightened sense of tension, a heightened sense of, um, well, what's happening? And then something lets go and it's okay. So I'll share just a quick story about letting go physically. I got into surfing when I lived in San Francisco in a a big way, and I moved to the beach, and I started going surfing all the time. But I was trying to pick up a sport at 35 that I had never tried before, and so there was a steep learning curve. Um, And when I first started um, going into bigger and bigger waves, there's this um, experience you can have in surfing that every surfer has. Um, That's not a good experience um, where 
basically you're you know you're sort of trying to time where you are as the wave you know a wave in the ocean starts to kind of rise up and you want to get it at its peak where there's a kind of face to the wave and that's where you want to be to catch the wave and then of course the life of the wave then continues on to fall you know the, the the sort of rise gets to be too much kind of weight at the top and it falls over and crashes and that's a wave breaking so this experience in surfing is like you're a little too late so the wave has already you know crested a face is formed and then you're sitting right where it's ready to kind of come back down the other way and so one bad experience can be the wave just crashes on you and depending on the size of the wave that can be um, scary or problematic but the, the worst is that is when you're actually on top of the wave rather than on the face of the wave you're on top of the wave sitting on top and it crashes and you basically fall whatever distance the wave had sort of lifted you up it crashes and then you fall and then you tumble in the it's called going over the falls because basically as the wave falls you're part of that sort of lip of the wave as it sort of comes down and crashes into the uh, ocean and if a wave is you know six or seven feet or ten feet or twelve feet you're basically falling twelve feet you know and then getting tumbled in the, the remnants and, and as a beginner this would happen fairly often and I was surprised by my own reaction to that experience <laughs> being whoa I'm about to fall tumbling in the in, in the underwater of the remnants of the wave, totally out of, you know, feeling how, how forceful and powerful the ocean is compared to my little, you know, um, wisp of a human body, it's sort of meaningless. And um, having the experience of coming up from that and like shouting, being like with ecstasy, like, wow, that was so fun. <laughs> that was great um, and it's my own reaction surprised me and I think over time I thought about um, this, this tension about letting go letting go into something and how I can't make it happen and I'm trying to make it happen and then the ocean just picks me up and throws me around and very viscerally teaches me that I'm not in control of um, in that moment I'm totally out of control with this body and mind and my visceral reaction to that was a sense of relief like oh that's, that feels amazing so um, and, and I think the practice in zazen or in stretching or in surfing is to bring some attention to that feeling of relief when we, when our body decides to let go, you know, regardless of how much we've tried to make it happen, it's not really us, and then it kind of, something happens and we're like out of control, to notice that, um, that feeling, to be conscious with that as a study um, of what letting go means. I think the more, and, and this surfing example is a, it was a, it was a very safe way to be out of control. Like, you know, even if the wave was 10 feet tall, I'm falling into, you know, 15 feet of water. I'm not going to hit the bottom. It's just water. I'm going to get tumbled. 
you know, I might get held under or something for a little while, it could get scary, but mostly it felt safe and out of control. <laughs> and I think those are, um, as a practice, then it's sort of like, well, how, where can I get in my life in situations that are both safe and out of control as a way of studying this felt sense of letting go. And maybe when we let go, what we notice or see or experience is stillness, is imperturbability, is um, a kind of open um, silence that we are part of everything. bit of Katagiri Roshi. He says, Buddhism is not revealed religion. It is self-awakening religion. Because it is based on the ultimate nature of existence. Faith in Buddhism does not depend on something extra, something outside of ourselves. Faith is based on self-awakening and consists of very simple actions. Even though we don't understand this ultimate nature, all we have to do is just to just continue to approach it. This is Buddhist faith. This is the pure sense of practice. Nothing contaminates it. It is very realistic, but simultaneously it is vast, connected with the universe. This is the actual practice for us, leaving the way to the way, leaving zazen to zazen leaving one step to one step. This is the true way to attain the way. This is all we have to do. So does anybody have a quick thought or a question they want to share? Yeah. Uh, I was struck at the beginning when you were talking about, you know, religion and Westerners. And I was a refugee from very fundamentalist uh, evangelical Christianity. Yeah. And when I turned my back on it, I was fervently anti-religion. Mm-hmm. And I found my way to Buddhism because of exactly what your barber said that, you know, mm-hmm. didn't have the God thing. Mm-hmm. And long story, but I got involved with uh, a group that was bringing the Dalai Lama here in the early years before he became such a rock star. Now he's got his own crew. But I was listening to one of his talks where there was a question and answer period. Mm -hmm. And somebody asked him the question, what do you, I'm paraphrasing, what do you think about Westerners who come and just get enchanted with Buddhism and throw everything away and, you know, la-di-da? I mean, doesn't that irritate you when they do that to, to Buddhism? And his holiness answered, he said, you know, it doesn't do them any harm. Uh, Anybody who passes through this pathway 
and then leaves it and moves on in their life, they've got something potentially of value. Uh, and then he was quiet for a moment and he said, but there's a few people, people in the room, for whom Buddhism reveals itself to be their true path. Mm-hmm. And he says, and that's a good thing. And then he was quiet again. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, this is great. This is great stuff. And then he said, after a long pause, he said, but you know, for those of you who have found Buddhism to be your true path, you are not completely on that path until you go back and make peace with your old religion. Because until you do, it's a hole in your psyche or a stone that you're carrying. And I thought, oh, <laughs> but in the course of my successive experience with Buddhism, I found that to be true. But I thought that was an interesting way of approaching that dichotomy between what we think we're fleeing and what we think we found. Mm. Yeah. yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I was perplexed when early in practice listening to Suzuki Roshi give similar advice. It was because um, I understood too that sense of being a refugee in Buddhism. Like um, I've come here for a reason. Like I don't want to be told to go back. But um, I think Suzuki Roshi had a similar instinct that um, part of practice is making peace with our life. But you know we can't demand how and when that happens or when we do that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I've always loved this expression that this expression that Brad Warner is taking credit for, but I think it goes up and back a lot farther than that. Uh-huh. There is no God, but He's everywhere. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.